Today's podcast is brought to you by my number one choice in tires, Pirelli. And since I used to be a race car driver, I know a thing or two about tires. The iconic tire brand is known for its long tradition of innovation, advanced technologies, and high-quality products. Pirelli recently added the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3 to its American range. Developed to go the distance, it comes with a 70,000-mile treadwear warranty. Choose more mileage, more comfort, more control with the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3. Ask your local dealer for a tune-up. Trust me, I'm a driver. You can work at a pretty high intensity with your workouts and a pretty high intensity with your job as long as you're getting sleep and as long as you're eating the right types of foods. But if you're not getting the sleep, that's our master recovery area. And if you're not getting the right type of sleep, then it doesn't matter if you're not overtraining. It doesn't matter if you're not stressed at work, you're going to be in that stress state from a lack of sleep. People will be amazed if they cut out the one hour of Netflix and chill and added that to their sleep on how much that would make them feel better the next day. Do we really have to stop the chill? I mean, the Netflix and chill, like I feel like the chill probably has some really good hormonal benefits. Yeah. Yeah. The chill part, totally. Um, the negative is you're just looking at a light and it's totally destroying your melatonin production, which is our sleep hormone. And so you oh, get- wait, I thought that meant sex. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> the chill part is great. <laughs> chill part. Great. Let's get rid of the Netflix part. Just jump to the chill part. And that's perfect. This podcast exists because I love talking to people and I love going deep. The purpose is to plant seeds of inspiration. We enter a space of vulnerability and relatability. And what you realize is that we are so much more alike than we are different. To quote Ramdas, we're all just walking each other home. And the show is just one step. I'm Danica Patrick and I'm pretty intense. Welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. We have a pretty intense nutritional day with Autumn Bates. She is a certified clinical nutritionist. She has her master's in nutrition and human performance. I found out about her on YouTube. She has an incredible amount of content. She's really clear and concise and to the point. And she talks a ton about how to fast, what to take, what to eat, what not to eat, how your hormones are working, things that lead to weight gain, everything in the realm of health and what we're consuming. So I was most interested in intermittent fasting and how that works and the effect on the body. And especially from a female perspective, we also talked about, you know, the the body as a system, as opposed to my old thinking of it, which was multiple systems. Her passion is all about the fueling window and not necessarily so much about the fast itself because uh, that's just happening. But what are we consuming during? Enjoy consuming all of this info because there's a lot. Get a pen and paper out because this is a pretty intense episode. What type of pills are you taking? I started working with a functional medicine doctor this year. And um, I mean, it's uh, it's all the stuff to improve detoxification pathways. So it's like NAC, NAD, vitamin C, glutathione, L-glutamine. I'm also like in a, I'm starting chelation for mm-hmm. heavy metal poisoning. So which heavy metal were you poisoned with? Mercury and uh- lead. Yeah, I was going to say lead is the one that's pretty common because it's it yeah. heard via the placenta from birth. I, oh, yeah, exactly. That's what I heard is that it's, it's hereditary. Yeah, yeah. Like the mother can, um, especially if you're like 
your mom grew up in the sixties. Um, a, a lot of lead was just used during that time. And it just yeah. stays in there unless you're doing something like you're doing and it gets passed on to the baby. Sometimes like tomorrow I start another chelation. It's like five days on nine days off for three months. So, so I'm in my, in my, in my first cycle, but before that it was all about the gut. So having I have dysbiosis and then, so I was on, you know, and leaky gut, which is kind of the same thing. I feel like in general, <laughs> Yeah, seems like. Very, very. So I was on all those protocols. And so I just eat pills all day long, <laughs> which is probably what makes me really curious about all this stuff too, because when we, which is especially why I've dove into so much of your information, because having to do with like autophagy and, you know, cells kind of being able to, you know, heal themselves and die off and regenerate and do all the things it needs to do. It's like, you know, but yet I feel like I'm one of those people that just work does a lot better when I don't have such long breaks without food and I, I get behind and it's really hard to catch up. And yeah. so there's like so much to it, but how did you, I mean, like, how did you get into it? I think that I've read something about anxiety and things like that, but you know, what was the impetus to send you down this path of being able to just, you know, just throw content at us like crazy. <laughs> and it just clearly flows out of you. Yeah. I, um, I mean, my background's in nutrition. And so it's always just been more focused on food, like the food aspect and the biochemistry of the body. And I growing up have had so much issues, so many issues with bloating where it was so severe where I, after every meal I would eat, I would have to lay down on something because it would just be so painful that I couldn't like sit up without feeling like I had to like unbutton my pants or something. Cause it was just so expanded. And I, especially during that time, I feel like there's a lot of stuff going on on social media where it's like bloating is normal. Like, look, I'm really bloated too. And I remember like, that can't be the case. Like the body can't just all the time you eat, be like, okay, now we're going to make you incapable of doing anything now. Um, so then it, this is a while ago, my dad's a chiropractor and he um, was learning about fasting. And I was very scared of that concept. I was like, I can't possibly go without food. Like, no way. I eat right when I wake up. I eat every two hours. Like, that's what I've always been trained to do, especially in nutrition space. Uh, but then eventually the bloating just got so bad where I was like, okay, <laughs> it may be there might be something that could help with this. And it was just so miraculous on how well it cleaned my gut, how well it just completely eliminated bloating. I never get bloated now unless I'm doing something wrong that I know I shouldn't be. And mm. it makes it that I never want to go back. And I want other people to feel that way too. Yeah. I, I, that you like totally hit it right on the head for me. It's like people would describe me as being disciplined and I don't really go off too much. And to me, it, I don't have a desire to be like, a big old cheat day where I eat a bunch of pizza and gluten and dairy and all kinds of stuff that I know will make me distended or feel bad because like my main goal is to feel good. And so I can feel good. Trust me, I can eat plenty of calories. Like I have no problem consuming calories or eating all day long. If I need to have a, you know, if I need to jolt my metabolism because I've been, you know, sort of repressing it for a while with any kind of restricted eating, um, <clears throat> which I don't normally do. So I, I stay pretty regimented, but it's totally the feeling good. And what's yeah. crazy is that people, I think there's a, like, there's a lot of people that don't even know what feel good means. Yeah. And 
I mean, my whole like slogan with my channel is that I want you to feel good again, but also a lot of people don't even have that again part. It's yeah. like for the first time. And that's actually been something really cool to see with clients or just people who are commenting on my channel where they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that I didn't have to feel this way all the time. Or I didn't realize how badly I was feeling a hundred percent of the time until I started to actually feel good. When I visited Egypt, I was introduced to an expert aromacologist who explained the healing powers of various scents. I returned home with 18 bottles of powerful essences that unlocked specific feelings and had all sorts of healing properties. I became inspired to find a functional way to deliver them in a new consumer lifestyle product. Candles became my medium. Voyant means seer a reference to the inner eye chakra, one of the key energy points in the body essential to wellness and healing. Voyant is a doorway to openness and imagination, a catalyst in our daily journey. Whether you're connecting with others or enjoying alone time, Voyant strives to beautify the home and the soul to create a haven of peace and joy. The candle is delivered with a beautiful monogram 12-ounce stemless wine glass, which can be used after the wax is gone. My limited edition candle collection is available exclusively at voyantbydanica.com. What is the most common thing that people um, cut out that makes a big difference? You mean in, in terms of like food or fasting? Yeah, yeah, food. I'd say food at, at, off the bat. Yeah, um, snacking. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not even a specific food it's snacking because that's why intermittent fasting is so great for, especially the gut healing aspect, which is what you're going to feel the most immediately. You're going to feel less bloated. You're going to not get gas and like that distension. And that's something you feel right away. And with snacking, you are breaking up the same benefit that you would get from fasting where you're stopping the gut cleaning process called the migrating motor complex if you've listened to like any of my videos, you probably heard me say it 20 times at like high all the big words. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it helps educate people. I mean, that's how I learn. I love to, I love to hear things I haven't heard before. So feel free to go as deep or as in yeah. specific as you like. Yeah. Um, and with, when you remove snacking, you actually activate that even between meals. So it takes three and a half, three hours, 45 minutes, like pretty much that specific area ish of number to get a full cycle of the migrating motor complex to be completed. So if you were eating like every two hours, you're never actually cleaning out your gut, which means you're always getting that bacteria and left behind food built up in your small intestine. And mm -hmm. so any other food that's coming through is just getting fermented and that fermentation is creating gas. And that's when you get that bloating, distension, acid reflux, um, a lot of women and men um, as well are getting small intestine bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. So all of that, what I've seen is one of the biggest things that people can make an immediate improvement on, even if they aren't using fasting, is just simply cutting out snacking, not even changing their diet at first, but removing the snacks can help massively to stimulate that MMC. And to be clear, snacking is anything like i mean I, i'm thinking like you know oh so what if i have a coffee with something in it what if i have um like be clear like fast or snacking is anything yeah anything other than water so if you have um i mean there's some debate and it can depend on each person because mm -hmm. technically speaking stress can slow down the MMC as well. So, you know, some people get a stress response in response to caffeine. So even though, you know, black coffee doesn't contain technically any food or calories that should disrupt the MMC, right. if you get a stress response from it, it can slow it down. 
Um, so that's where, if you really want to maximize gut health, having just water in between your meals will make it so that the MMC can stay stimulated. In the heart of Napa Valley lays Somnium, which means to dream in Latin. The Somnium Vineyard Estate is an extension of the love and intensity that I pour into everything I do. To experience our wines, visit SomniumWine.com and use the code Somnium to receive a $10 flat shipping rate. Please drink responsibly. Mm, mm, wow. I, I have tried some of that and I, I mean like more intermittent fasting and more like less snacking. I, I wore a, um, blood glucose monitor, a continuous blood glucose monitor for a couple months. That is an education. Have you ever done that? Uh, (laughs) I have one. I still haven't done it, but yeah, I I need to try it out. I have a um, glucose meter and a ketone meter, but I have a continuous glucose monitor one. Yeah. And, and it's amazing how certain foods will, you know, spike your insulin and then just anything. I mean, any food whatsoever you think like, even you think like, Oh, I just had some protein. It's like protein mm-hmm. does it too, you know, maybe not as, not as bad as a sweet potato, yeah, but right. you know, it, it, it still does it. So I feel like that's kind of my first, the first phase of education I got, which is like digital proof, right? You're looking at it, you're yeah. going, oh, shoot. Um, <laughs> And, um, so, so getting into the meat of fasting and I have so many questions because being a girl, I just feel like things must be different. I mean, like, what was your journey through the testing of it all? Because I'm, you seem like the kind of person that has tried it all on yourself. Yeah, I did. I started off with the 16 hour, which I don't really recommend doing. I recommend now starting off with like a 12 hour, just because that's a really great way to ease into the process so that you aren't shocking your system and you're able to more strategically plan out your meals. So you can actually get enough of your nutrient needs during the fast or during the eating window. Rather, um, that's a big problem with women that I've seen is that they don't get enough during their eating window. And that's what makes yeah. it unsustainable for them to continue on with intermittent fasting and why they get so hungry. Uh, but we can get into that in a bit, but Yeah, I I did the 16 hour fast first. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I feel amazing. If I feel great with 16 hours, probably like I'll feel even better with 20 hours or like a 24 hour fast. So I tried all those (laughs) and I made the mistakes that I now warn people against where I didn't get enough food for my body system because it's really hard, especially with protein to get all those needs in during such a short window. And especially if you're fasting for a full day, you can't really make up your protein needs from that day with alternate day fasting, for example. So whenever you see like studies that are um, talking about intermittent fasting, not being great for women, they're always talking about alternate day fasting or extended fasting. They're never talking about time restricted feeding. And if they are, it's when you're not getting enough food for your body, where you're constantly in a calorie restricted state, which just in general, calorie restriction is horrible for women. It's already been found to cause um, a lot of fertility issues with women long-term hormones. It's hard on your hormones. Right. And so, but just to be clear though, alternate day fasting, does that mean 12, 16, 12, 16, or does that mean 24 and then you eat all day the next day? Yeah. It literally means one day you fast, one day you don't. So 24 hours. Yeah. You fast for 24 hours. And then the next day you don't fast. You can eat like what's called a quote unquote normal day where you wake up and eat right away. I have a lot of problems with the alternate day fasting. I know there's been some people have seen success with it, but not only do you not get enough for your needs, but it's so not sustainable for life. Like how do you plan out your life 
to be like, okay, on this day, I'm not going to fast on that day. And, but it's, it's John's birthday on that day. And I know we're going to be going out to eat. So am I just going to like have sparkling water? Like it doesn't make sense logistically long-term. And I think that especially in the intermittent fasting space, it's so filled with these like highly overachieving people where they have the ability and the discipline to like schedule out their life to an alternate day fast protocol. Nine out of 10 people, probably more than that, can't do that or don't want to do that. And if we're only preaching those methods, then we're not going to actually help everyone else where they could get so many results with time-restricted feeding. Yeah. So you found that 16 was the best. What did you find with 18? And maybe you tried 18 or maybe you just went to 20. And then did you ever do OMAD as well? One meal a day? I did try out OMAD. So that's like a 22 hour fast, essentially. Um, I also, I, again, I have clients who that works for them. Um, I found most people it doesn't because like, let's just say your protein needs like mine are about 80 or 90 grams per day. Have you ever tried to sit down and eat that much protein at one meal? It's nearly, nearly impossible, especially from a complete protein source. And I mean, you're, it's really hard to actually get everything that your body needs with a one meal day. It can be done. Some people do it well, but, um, I found for myself at most, I can do two meal a day, which, you know, will be about a six hour eating window. Um, so like an 18 hour fast, but I also find success with the 12 or even 14 hour. There were some recent studies that showed, um, even if you could just do 12 hour fasting per day, you get a lot of the same benefits as a 16 or an 18 hour fast. Really? So what's happening? Can, what's the science to why we should be doing it? I mean, obviously there's some gut help and we heard a little bit about, you know, bloating and that kind of stuff and letting the, the, um, the, what's the MM, what's the word again? We could, we could just leave it to MMC. It's migrating, but MMC is the easy term there. I mean, it all comes down to, if we can understand the basic idea of what our bodies need to do every day, we need to build up and we need to break down. We can't always be building. We can't always be breaking down. So even if you look at like with strength training with workouts, something that all of us are a little bit more familiar with. We know that we need to work out, which is breaking down, but then we also need rest. And that rest is where the muscle builds back up. So it's the same thing with literally everything else in our body. We need to have those ups and downs we need for our gut. We need to be breaking down food so we can get the nutrients we need, but our gut is also a machine. So it needs rest in order to have the, you know, the cleaning crew come in to clean up what was left behind um, so that it can do its job efficiently the next day. Same thing with ourselves, like what you're talking about, autophagy or, or mitophagy. There's a lot of different, like more specific biology terms there. Um, but basically your cells need to, you know, they're always recreating itself. Um, each cell has a different lifespan, but we need to actually be able to break down cells in order to create new cells that are healthy again. And that's with fasting, what you're doing. We're always in this state a perpetual building up. If you're eating all day long, you're always building, you're always um, trying to break down food so that you can have that anabolic or build up state, but you never actually get into that cleanup crew time. And with yourselves, with your gut, that's what you're really focused on in terms of fasting each day. Wow. Yeah. I mean, super powerful stuff, especially for how much stuff we deal with now and dealing with the environment and getting sick and, you know, just like, just, I mean, I wonder too, is that, is this linked to aging even? I mean, is there a link to a lack of cell cleanup to the aging process? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of hard to specifically track down what's linked to aging just because there's so many factors. You can't really isolate one thing down, but it would make sense if you think of just from a logistical thought process where 
Uh, like if you think of the analogy of having a car, if you're always driving, you never get it tuned up, then it's going to break down faster than if you allow it to get tuned up. So yeah, I, I mean, I would theorize, but there's no way to really yeah. test that. Yeah. I know a lot about cars, so that's true. Yeah. <laughs> you need a pit crew doing, you know, diving into this and learning more and learning more about the timing. And of course your sleep does count as fasting, but what is happening when you aren't sleeping and you're fasting? Like today I was, I feel like a, I feel like a damn hero. I stopped eating at eight o'clock last night and I got up and I, had a little black coffee. I always drink black coffee. And I went to the gym and worked out for an hour. I had to pick my car up. I picked my car up. I came home and then I still was going. And I'm like, okay. And so I went and did my red light for 20 minutes. And then I sat in the sauna for 25 minutes Dang. and I got right. And then I went and finally ate. And by the way, I was starving, but yeah. it was probably, I think I ate at somewhere almost noon, like 1130 or 12 o'clock. So for me, that's like a really long window. So yeah. what's happening during the awake hours versus the sleep hours? Are they the same? Or are they different? It's I mean, from a cellular perspective, like autophagy, it's pretty similar um, because a lot of it's dictated by insulin. So when your insulin or storing hormone is high, which it is when we're, when we've eaten, um, then that whole autophagy sequence is turned off. But when it's low, because we're fasting, autophagy is turned on for, so from a cellular perspective, it's pretty much the same regardless of if you're asleep or awake, but the migrating motor complex is a little different where when you're asleep, it's not fully activated. You know, it slows down quite a bit. So you, you don't get the full, it, that three hour, 45 minute window of how long it takes to go through a cycle is extended. So you want to make sure you have the waking hours of fast from a gut healing perspective as well. So you can get that full migrating motor complex um, system activated. What's happening when you do actual activities like um, walk, walking, which we will totally talk about walking <laughs> when we get more into like fitness stuff, but, um, you know, from a, from an active activity standpoint, are there extra benefits or things that you could take advantage of? Yeah. I mean, during a fasted state, the, the huge benefit, especially with exercise is that your growth hormone is elevated. So when your growth hormone is elevated, it's more muscle protective, but it also allows you to use fat as fuel more easily. So obviously when you're fasted, I mentioned insulin, that other hormone insulin is low, which means our fat burning is cranked up. So you more efficiently, especially if weight loss is your goal, you're more efficiently using fat as fuel. So you're actually tapping into fat rather than just general weight um, and losing muscle mass. And you're protecting your muscle during that state because you have that increased growth hormone that's protecting your muscle um, during that fasted state. Oh, wow. Good. So workout first. Is there a certain kind of workout that's better? Is it better to do sort of low intensity stuff like walking? Is it, is it better to do weightlifting at that point in time? Is there anything that like yeah. ranks higher? Uh, so it depends on what state you're at, where you're at in your intermittent fasting journey specifically. If you're new and if you are still getting hungry during the fasted state, then you likely haven't really gotten great at burning fat as fuel yet. So you need to focus on the um, energy systems or the workouts that don't require, you know, using carbohydrates as a fuel source. You want to use the one, you want to do the types of workouts that are lower intensity that don't raise the heart rate too high so that you can really push your body into a fat burning state. Otherwise, if you do like a high intensity workout and you're already still getting hungry during your fast, you're forcing your body to then use carbohydrates as fuel. And now you're in that up and down cycle of, of getting cravings because you, you've um, broken out of that fat burning state. And now you're in a carbohydrate burning state, which is less sustainable. So you're saying I might not be in a fat burning, I might not be burning fat for fuel. I might be using 
sugar sugar burner versus fat burner right isn't that kind of yeah it could be that or it could be what you're eating during your eating window which a lot of people forget about and that's something huge if you've seen my channel like one video that you probably noticed i really focus on is the actual eating window portion because the fast is great that's really important that's where you're actually getting a lot of the benefits but you can ruin it during the eating window and that is something that no one talks about and it's so unfortunate because that's the area where i made the huge mistakes because i was not doing it right and i was doing awful and i wasn't getting the benefits that everyone was talking about what does awful mean like hungry all the time like but what does awful mean in your eating window oh okay um yeah back then i definitely was not eating enough protein that was the biggest one um and i was eating a lot more of simple carbohydrates that were you know when you're in a fast you're using fat but then if you go immediately to using carbohydrates as a fuel source it kind of confuses the body and it gets you to more of an up and down energy cycle during your eating window so mm -hmm. it's harder to transition back into a fat burning state once you go into the fast and that's the mistake i made <laughs> got it so by simple carbohydrates, are you talking like white bread kind of like simple carbohydrates? Or are you talking about like simple meaning like sweet potato? Like, is that more simple or rice? Yeah, um, I was having much more fruit in my smoothies. So mm -hmm. I love smoothies and I was dumping fruit in, like had so much, I would even put like honey in, like just simple sugars, um, things that we think of as healthy and they get yeah. like a health halo, but it's a lot of sugar and it will switch your body into using sugar as a fuel source instead of using fat. So that was one big thing was the fact that I was breaking my fast with a really high sugar smoothie. Um, and then also still snacking. I wasn't eating until satiated at each of my meals. I was even snacking within my eating window and that made it so I was never fully satisfied. Mm. And so I was going into my fast already hungry. Ah, yeah. I think I've totally made the mistake of not eating enough in the window, like, which is why yeah. I like get behind because I don't eat enough in that window to feel good for a long time. So let's talk about insulin and maybe start off with first insulin with the workout, because I do get confused with the insulin because my insulin did spike with workout. And so, you know, let's talk about that. And then we'll talk about insulin with a food since we're talking about, yeah. you know, work, you know, movement, then we'll talk about food. It was probably your blood glucose that spiked because it's pretty hard to track insulin, especially. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Blood glucose. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm assuming you're probably doing a higher intensity exercise. Usually. Yeah. <laughs> I take it from the podcast name. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah uh, higher intensity exercise is just like what I was referring to with sticking to lower intensity exercises that use fat as fuel. Higher intensity requires carbohydrates to, you know, when you get to a certain level in your heart rate, your body can't use fat because there's just not enough oxygen available. Cause you're, um, you're just, you're breathing too hard. You, your intensity is too high that you now need to be switching into a faster energy source, which is carbohydrates. And with our, um, stored carbohydrates that's in our muscle and our muscle glycogen, that's when our body will spike our, um, stress hormone cortisol in order to release it. And that's why with the higher intensity exercise, you see a spike in blood glucose because it's releasing all that glucose from your muscles in order to fuel that higher intensity exercise. So it's not necessarily, um, insulin. I mean, insulin will definitely rise after the fact to help bring that down if it wasn't used. Mm -hmm. But insulin is one that's kind of a misunderstood hormone because most people aren't actually measuring it. They're measuring glucose, they're measuring A1C. So all like derivatives of glucose, which is important. Mm -hmm. It is useful, but it's not really the big picture. And it doesn't actually show you how insulin is working. How is insulin working? <laughs> <laughs> so insulin is 
largely supposed to only be released from our body when we've eaten something and specifically eaten carbohydrates. Um, it will get released in response to protein a little bit, but not very much. And then to fats, it's pretty much zero. That's why like if you hear people who are following the keto diet, they keep their insulin really low, even though they're eating all day. Um, even if they aren't using fasting, because they're eating primarily fat. So insulin isn't really released. So insulin, um, I mean, you probably heard most people, if they've heard of insulin, they've heard it in relation to type two diabetes or type one diabetes. We just think of it as like that area, but about a uh, CDC just came out with a report, I think is in 2017, um, about hundred million Americans have an issue with higher insulin levels, which is like one third of people. Um, and that's really the hormone that will regulate if we're using fat or carbohydrates. So even just from the perspective of weight loss, you want to be looking after your insulin and you want to be controlling for that and not overly spiking it. Um, and then also with fasting, that's where that perk comes in when you're in a fasted state because insulin, you're not eating, you're so it's dipped down and the body shifts into that fat burning state. Like what leads to weight gain? Because maybe we should talk about calories first. Yeah. I was <laughs> the, 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 the myth of calories and like, right. you know, when you actually think about it, like think about calories and like, how do they even measure it? getting really sciencey. They use um, what's called, called a bomb calorie calorimeter. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, that's like not interesting at all. They're just basically measuring how much heat is expelled. But in terms of calories and why we should even care about them, it is one of the most hotly debated topics within nutrition. There's two big camps. One says it's only calories. It doesn't matter where they come from. It's calories in, calories out. The other is looking at it from a hormonal perspective, which is what nutrition is shifting toward. You know, that's just calories in, calories out is really old school mentality. Unfortunately, it's just still the only prevailing thing taught in schools. Um, like I had my undergrad and master's and CCM programs, and they're all just still talking just about calories and not the hormonal effect. Um, there's a big disconnect when you go from like physiology class where they're talking about insulin and how it shuts off fat burning and, and turns on um, and, uh, turns on fat storage instead. And then you go into nutrition class and they're like, it's only calories in calories out. But I know that's, that's a little aside. Um, in terms of calories, it's really just an energy unit. It, it doesn't really say much about where it's going to be stored or how it's going to be used. So like protein, for example, we don't really use for energy. We use it to build. We use it to create new cells. We use it to create hormones, to create the lining of our gut. It's not something unless we're in a starved state that we're using as an energy source, um, and then if you look at carbohydrates, carbohydrates and fat, those two are, are our energy sources. So those are the two that we actually, like, if you're lifting weight, you're using carbohydrates or using fat, you're not going to be using protein. Really? Yeah. So you can just kind of think of it as like a, a switch. Huh. You're either using the carbohydrates or you're using the fat when you're using energy protein is one burner, fat burner. Exactly. Yeah, Exactly. So that's where you get the whole um, debate on how much of an impact hormones actually have versus just simply calories. There's a lot of studies that are now showing that looking at it from a hormonal perspective has a bigger impact on weight loss versus just calories in, calories out. I mean, you could look at the biggest loser study where you know, the show, the biggest loser, where people were eating like 800 calories a day and um, having that over an extended time and their metabolism is wrecked as a result and they can't lose weight after that. And now they're obese again, even eating 800 calories a day. So clearly that method and that model doesn't work. And there's studies now showing that based off of the types of foods you're eating, you can actually dictate if you're going to be burning fat and maintaining muscle mass, or if you're just 
you know, going to decrease your metabolism. <laughs> Explain more about that. So our body, um, it's always trying to preserve itself. So it's always trying to make sure that we have enough to run the basic functions. Um, that's its first core thing it's focused on. It's focused on being able to create new hormones and have um, our brain cells function, have our heart beat. And so protein helps to maintain all of that in terms of building. But then when it comes to um, you know calorie intake, once you start to decrease your energy intake, you start to shut off what's available for your body to use to fuel its essential systems. So that's why when people start to decrease, like, let's say they usually eat 2000 calories a day and they drop it down to 1500 calories a day to try and lose like the one pound a week type of thing. Yeah. Uh, now they have less energy for their body to actually use to fuel their brain, to fuel their heart. And so in order to protect those essential systems, the body will decrease the energy use for other areas that are less essential. So that's where you'll see women losing their period or, and having fertility issues. Cause why send blood flow there? It's not essential right now when we need to be able to breathe and have a heartbeat and have our brain think, um, sure. you'll see hair loss because you're not getting enough to actually produce hair. Um, so that's just, you know, the calorie perspective from the hormone hormonal perspective, it tells you where that energy is used rather than, um, just simply reducing it. So if you're looking from, for weight loss and you're trying to lose weight, but you want to maintain all these systems and you want to burn fat and not just overall weight, you want to tell, you want your hormones to dictate where that energy is going. You want it to, um, you want to tell your body to pull energy from your fat, not from your muscles. And you want your body to then have enough energy for your brain, your heart, but also your hair. So that's where the hormones can start to, if you can master what types of foods um, you're going to be eating, that then dictate where those things are being partitioned with insulin being that key one of regulating burning fat or carbohydrates, then you can avoid a lot of those issues of decreased metabolism and fertility issues. Okay. So outline in a good and a bad scenario, using your hormones to <clears throat> direct what happens in the body versus a bad scenario and like what you would consume. And I know everybody's a little bit different, but it's probably some generalities there. What does that look like? And what hormones are we talking about? Yeah. Well, the key hormone is going to be insulin. It's one that's the master hormone that will dictate, especially from a weight loss perspective, everything that's going on. Um, I mean, insulin can affect other hormones downstream as well. So it's kind of like the one that we have the most control over immediately. And that can also, um, directly affect weight loss as a result. So if we're talking about like the alternative where, you know, it's just simply decreasing calories. It could be anything. You could be having cookies all day mm -hmm. and have 1500 calories worth of cookies, but you're in a quote calorie um, deficient state. Uh, that's where, even though you're eating 1500 calories, you're eating a lot of refined sugars and carbohydrates that spike insulin. So you could be eating less quote unquote energy than what your body needs, but that energy is being told to be stored mm. and it's not being told to be used. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So let's replace it. Like, let's replace it with, you know, as you talk about so much like fat, protein, and fiber. So let's replace that idea with a, like 1500 calories of that. Then what happens? Yeah. So when you have, let's give that same example, 1500 calories and you have um, 20% of that coming from protein. Now your protein needs are covered. Your body doesn't think it's in a state of starvation. So that's the number one macronutrient that will dictate if your body thinks it's in a state of starvation or not. Really? It, yeah. There's studies also done on high protein versus low protein diets, but with the same amount of calorie intake of like 800 calories a day. And those who are on um, the higher protein quote higher, but it's like 20%. 
um, higher protein diets don't have the starvation issues and don't have the decreased metabolism that the low protein diet has. So that's where we can avoid that. <laughs> why, why protein is the first component of the protein, fat, and fiber. Making sure you actually get enough protein for your needs. And most people aren't. Most people have no idea how much protein they need or they think that they're getting plenty. Um, it's a big myth in the nutrition world. Um, and then the fat component makes it so you're providing your body energy and satiety. So this is where we get into another hormone, um, cholecystokinin, which is our satiety hormone, tells our brain that we're full, we're satisfied, we don't need to eat. So it helps us regulate our appetite, actually, so that we don't need to be eating beyond what we really need. We can self-regulate without having to have a calorie tracker by eating enough of both protein and fat. Both of those release um, satiety hormones that tell our brain we're full and that we don't need to keep eating. The problem comes in when you add highly insulin spiking foods that kind of um, get bypassed that whole system and make it so that you spike your hunger again. So mm -hmm. if you have enough of the fat component to actually get satisfied and to tell your brain that you're full and you don't need to keep eating, you not only have an energy source, but you can also indiscriminately pull from your own energy source from your own fat source as well, because your body doesn't discriminate between the fat you're eating or the fat that's in your body. So mm -hmm. it will pull back and forth between mm -hmm. the fat that you're eating and the fat that's in your body, which is why people who focus on protein, fat, and fiber will get a decrease um, body fat percentage while still maintaining muscle mass, which is normally unheard of with just a calorie restrictive state. It's always like, oh, bulking season. I'm going to increase muscle mass, but inevitably fat will go up and then I'm going to get cutting season and decrease both. Mm, yeah, totally. So how much, what is the guideline for protein? Like what is the recommended? Yeah. The recommended, like if you're to look at USDA guidelines, it's really just recommended so that you don't starve. Like that's what it's recommended. Let's not USDA. Let's not use USDA. Cause okay. I, don't, I, don't, I mean, yeah. from my understanding, the food pyramid and all of that crap is made by the people that sell you all their ingredients. So let's oh. not use anything that the government has. To say. <laughs> let's go off of Autumn's experience and all of your 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 education and what you see in the real world and yes. what you see for yourself. What is the what is a great guideline for the amount of protein? The formula that I use is a range. So it's 1.2 to 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. So what kilogram? number? What about pounds? I know it's so annoying. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you just take your weight divided by 2.2. There's kilogram. Okay. So it's pretty easy, but, um, the reason why there's a little bit of a range for that just depends on how much stress your body is under. Cause when you're under more stress, you need more protein because your body, when it's under state of stress, it's breaking down. So you need that protein to help build back up. So a stress could be exercise. Like if you're exercising a lot, then you'd be on the range of 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. If you're under fairly low stress and you're just walking, which is great exercise, but it's not a highly stressful exercise, you could probably be fine with 1.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. But that's the range that I like to use and that I always suggest. Like I have a couple of different videos on that to walk through. Um, but that's a good range to cover your needs so that you aren't going to be under consuming. Well, let's just talk about vegans then and vegetarians. Um, I'm I'm going to guess that you don't condone that, like you or like you wouldn't say that that's your chosen path. Yeah, I mean, I work with everyone on whatever it is that they. I mean, because I know ethically, there's reasons why people would want to be vegans. Um, that's I'm why not I tried for a little while too, and I'm like, mm, that's probably yeah. what left me in a extremely. Uh, and I use extremely without using it five times, which I should high level of mercury because I then was like, well, maybe like fish is okay. And I'm sure yeah. that was part of the equation, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I tried too, and I, I never felt that great. Right. Yeah. I was a vegetarian for, um, 
the first like 10 years of my life. And then I tried vegan for like a year in college, (laughs) as a lot of people do. Uh, But yeah, it's, it is more difficult to get complete protein. It's not impossible, but it is more difficult. And the complete protein is what people forget. Like if they're just tracking their calories, they're like, oh, I I got a hundred grams of protein. I'm fine. But it's counting protein from broccoli. It's counting protein from peanut butter. It's counting protein from all these other sources that aren't complete proteins where you're actually deficient in complete protein because you actually didn't account for that. And in order to be complete, obviously you need all of the essential amino acids, but specifically you need one called leucine. So leucine is the main amino acid. I mean, you've probably heard it through all of your trainings, but it's the one that we need in order to stimulate muscle synthesis or or muscle growth. So if we don't have that, then we aren't actually making proteins efficiently. And, um, you know, with a lot of the plant-based proteins, they're usually not going to be complete. And if they are, they're going to be low in leucine. Like uh, tofu or soy proteins. There's a, another study, um, in the sports nutrition world where it compared soy protein versus, I believe it was whey protein. And it found that, um, soy was 85% lower in leucine. So 85% less effective. In fact, um, the soy protein did just as well as the control that didn't have any protein in terms of muscle growth. So it is definitely more difficult. It's not that it can't be done, but you'll likely need to take branch chain amino acids, um, and to help get that back up. Uh, vegetarian, it's easier. It's actually not too hard because eggs and dairy-based proteins are some of the best proteins you can be getting. They're some of the richest in leucine. So you can totally be a vegetarian and and have no issues, have to take no supplements. And then obviously if you're omnivorous, it's the easiest way because just getting all of your different variety of proteins from animal-based products is the most rich in leucine. Yeah. And then there's, you know, as I've learned like bioavailability of, of, of the, what you're eating, And, um, so I'm kind of curious of like your hierarchy of bioavailability, um, when it comes to protein, but let's start with protein powder. Cause I always have such a question with this. I'm like, does it really count? Is it the same thing? And, you know, then my mind's like, well, it's kind of like kind of going the sweet. I always think of food in a sweet, savory sort of way. I'm like, I'm like, oh, and I'm trying to do, I'm trying to follow for a while. It's been like, I don't know, almost two weeks trying to do Tim Ferriss's like slow carb diet with like basically like protein, beans, fat. It's pretty much that. And, you know, greens and tons of greens. So it's very, and then you have one day off a week where you, you're supposed to go wild, which is a new concept. (laughs) Because your metabolism gets a little slowed with this, or your thyroid can reduce its function. There's there's actually never been a study proving that That, that's another really really big myth that thyroid. Yeah. That lower carbohydrate has an issue with thyroid. It, I don't know where that came from. Honestly, that's something that I've never actually seen the study to back that up, but it's something that it seems as if it's been repeated so many times that people just assume that's the case. Mm -hmm. But every study that's looking at people who are following a higher fat, lower carbohydrate diet has no issues with thyroid. Could it be caloric, like a too low calorie? Uh, yeah, that's true. Calories reduce their thyroid function. That definitely is the case, but that's not talking about food quality. It's talking sure. about quantity, and that could be from anything. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's like, just to make it accessible for people because yeah. <laughs> that way people are like, oh man, I mean, I had like black beans and chicken and avocado today. I'm so bored. Right. But Sunday <laughs> is going to be the day. Right, um, yeah, <laughs> but the but from protein sources, I get. I I just. I, in my mind, I think to myself, if I'm going to, if I'm going to eat protein, I really should be eating like, you know, grass fed, grass finished beef, 
you know, free range chicken, you know, trying to eat the highest quality protein yeah. sources I can wild fish. Um, but, but is there, I mean, is there, is there a general bioavailability to protein powders that we know of, or is it such a big range? Cause you were talking about soy yeah. versus whey, which, you know, yeah. Um, I mean, there's actually a lot of research on that just because the sports nutrition supplement world is, you know, so huge that they've done so much research on that specific question. Um, but yeah, depending on the type of protein powder you're using, it's actually pretty bioavailable because it's so rich in leucine. If you're mm. using egg or dairy-based protein, you're great. You're getting a really high quality protein source. If you're using, um, depending on the plant-based source, it'll range, but you probably want to increase the branch chain amino acids if taking that. Uh, but in terms of the actual protein, it's pretty similar, but you just get other benefits from other types of foods. So like with grass-fed, grass-finished beef, you get selenium, which selenium helps with the detox pathways, like what you're referring to. Helps I have a couple of those macadamia nuts a day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and you get omega-3 fatty acids, which also, of course, is helping with anti-inflammatory um, pathways too. So there's other reasons why you would want to have more complete complete, meaning like it has all of these other nutrients or dairy where grass fed dairy has vitamin K2, which is so under talked about and so under consumed. Um, but that's a little bit of a side tangent, but as long as you, yeah. <laughs> vitamin D, Cause I take vitamin D plus K2. Is that yeah. where the K2 comes in with the vitamin D that I need that I take? Yeah. It's really good that you're doing that. A lot of people are just taking vitamin D and, you know, for a long time, we're like, I'll just load up with vitamin D more better. Um, but increasing vitamin D without taking vitamin K2 will actually increase your deficiency of vitamin K2 and vitamin K2 specifically needed to take calcium out of the arteries and put it into the bones. So it actually could increase your heart disease risk by taking vitamin D without taking vitamin K2. Or if you take calcium supplements and you're not taking vitamin K2, that will, that's, there's a, a lot of research showing that women were getting increased heart disease risk from taking calcium because it wasn't actually leaving their arteries and going into their bones. But once you add in K2, it, it helps to get it in there. Wow. I mean, speaking of supplements, I mean, are there some that I, this is my theory is just that like the, the food industry it's in, it's about mass production, the value of the soil. I mean, we can look at the, the alarming, you know, potential of having only maybe 60 harvests left in our soil, um, which is just a frightening thought mm -hmm. um, unless we do regenerative farming and start yeah. to you know, replenish the nutrients in the soil. Um, so I, what are their thing? So my theory is, is that it's just not the same in same nutrition in food. And I've heard the saying, like, you're not, you're not hungry for food. You're hungry for nutrition. You know, you're hungry for the yeah. vitamins and nutrients that are within the ingredients. So I just think there's probably some supplements that generally speaking, we just, you know, we just probably need more of because of this day and age that we live in. in yeah. I mean, it's whatever. definitely decreased. Um, the hard thing to know is even what's optimal. So that's another question where no one really knows like what's the optimal amount of vitamin D or magnesium or anything for each person. It's going to range. Like it's no great question. Who came up with the ranking of what's good? Like yes. who came up with, I mean, <laughs> Damn them, we're out. They're out. They're out. Um, of course, my functional doctor, you know, would be like, okay, well, you're low in vitamin D. So, you know, we 
take this vitamin D plus K2. Now it's in an ideal spot. It's not even just within the range. It's optimal. You know, yeah. that's what we're shooting I, for. That's, so, that's what I get pretty nervous about with supplements. I rarely recommend supplements unless it's for a very specific reason, just because it's chemistry, it's biochemistry. We have no idea how that's going to interact within our body, especially taking them all together. I mean, just like the D3 example, we thought D3, that was going to save everyone's lives and get rid of cancer by taking D3. And then all of a sudden it increased heart disease risk. Like there's no way to really know because our body is so complex. There's so many chemical reactions happening within it. I typically like to just get it from food, even though it might be less, you know, you're not at least getting it out of proportion in a way that was unnatural for us to be getting it. So that's, you know, the proportions can also be what really matters. Like we know that taking too much omega-6 increases inflammation in the body from all the seed oils. So if you're getting like the grass-fed beef, you're getting vitamin K2, you're getting selenium, you're getting all these things, you're getting calcium, all these things that are supposed to be packaged together and used in that way. And that's just in my mind, a safer way to go about it rather than having all of these supplements where we don't really know what's happening. Like, yeah, it might look good on a chart, but what does it really say when we discover that there's another type of reading that we need to be assessing in the future? So you think that the food that we can buy the highest quality food that we can buy in the store um, will give us all the nutrients that we need? From what I've seen for the vast majority of people, if you can get high quality uh, food sources, then yeah. I mean, especially with a lot of the like multivitamins and such, you're not really getting much of any of the nutrients from that anyway. Um, But there is a case we made for certain people with certain supplements like Um, magnesium is one that if I do recommend that is a great one because that is going to be a mineral that tends to be really depleted. The issue can come in with like the vitamins because vitamins are something that we tend to hold on to, or they tend to even act as hormones in the body. Minerals are ones that we can usually release a little bit easier. If we have excess amounts like sodium, for example, if we have high amounts of sodium, we can release it assuming that um, our insulin level isn't high. Uh, but yeah, it's the vitamins that can be a little bit more of a concern over the minerals. Yeah. I like that idea. I love the idea that I don't have to eat a whole bunch of pills. <laughs> one <some> pills <laughs> oh my God, which I have been all day of this. I feels like all year I've been, <laughs> I've been eating, eating pills. We're talking about how a lot of times, you know, certain things like food can obviously do certain things within the body, but then there's of course fitness. And then there's like what you do, um, workout wise. I mean, see, I used to think of the body as being like having multiple systems. I'm like, Oh, I go do upper body workout. My lower body's not sore. I'll kill that today. And then I'll go do, and then I'll go crush it and have do a bunch of interviews and crank my brain and really think and be focused. And so I used to think of my body as having these multiple systems and I could just rotate through tapping them and kind of as time has gone and I've gone through my health you know, struggles and journey. And, you know, I feel good. So it's not like I, there's a lot of people in a worse position than I am, but I want optimal. And, um, and I've ended up realizing, wow, the whole body is like one motherboard system. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot of this through training for the Boston marathon this year, um, which was brutal in Arizona. Um, especially when you have to run in the summer. Yeah, I trained for um, the LA marathon when I lived in Arizona as well. (laughs) Oh gosh, brutal, brutal. I'm so sorry. I, I have all the empathy you could possibly need right here. 
Um, but I, I ended up starting to realize how, you know, just heat in and of itself is an element. And then, you know, the, 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 the volume of the running versus the resting, and you could see how your heart rate variability changes. You can see how your recovery changes and you could just see, and especially my functional doctors, like you want to heal all these things, but you're running a marathon. Like you're really being hard on your body. So, you know, maybe we could talk, just help us understand, you know, what, what happens to the body when we overtrain? Cause I'm, 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 uh, I'm totally guilty of that. Yeah. I mean, sounds like there may have been overtraining, but sounds like you had over life training (laughs) going on at the same time. So it's hard to say if you were overtraining or if you just had other stressors that were making the overtraining more evident. True. Um, So what are those stressors? Because that's the thing is that they all matter. Like they all are part of the same system. And I think in functional medicine, that's what I've ended up realizing is like, there's an overlap of like, like everything kind of works together Mm -hmm. and it's like one's down, the other's off. And it's like, it's just really, really delicate balance. And, um, and so maybe explaining just kind of what are the, what are all of the draining buckets? Cause I think there's somebody that goes to work and they're, you know, working their butt off all day and then they come home and they have stress and they're trying to get their workout and they're doing this. And it's like, they can't figure out why they can't lose weight. Yeah. It goes back to the main overarching thing we talked about intermittent fasting on how your body needs that buildup and needs the breakdown. Like you can't have one or the other. And if you are um, getting the tear down of the stressors happening nonstop where you're tearing down your muscles, so you don't actually um, have any type of recovery from your muscles, but then you also are getting a lot of mental stress, which acts physically within our body. The mental stress causes the same type of stressors to be signaled within our body. So our body perceives it still as a stress, especially if you're um, you know, operating at a higher level and have a lot of stress with your job. But then also if you're not getting great sleep, that's other, that's a huge factor. That's usually the biggest one where you can work at a pretty high intensity with your workouts and a pretty high intensity with your job, as long as you're getting sleep and as long as you're eating the right types of foods. But if you're not getting the sleep, that's our master recovery area. And if you're not getting the right type of sleep, then it doesn't matter if you're not overtraining. It doesn't matter if you're not stressed at work, you're going to be in that stress state from a lack of sleep. So I don't know if, um, from your perspective, it seemed like maybe the sleep resonated a little with you. Um, actually I sleep really well. I actually sleep just fine. I'm like, I tap the buckets. Like I'm one of those people that's just like, just, I am all about it. And if I'm bored, I just go work out. Yeah. 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 Then you probably just were overdoing it with both because there's most people, I mean, you're a little bit of a different case where you probably just were really actually pushing yourself to the extremes on both work and um, your exercise routine. But a lot of people don't consider sleep. So probably a lot of your listeners don't actually get the sleep they need to recover from those workouts or to recover from the stress of work. And people will be amazed if they cut out the one hour of Netflix and chill and added that to their sleep on how much that would make them feel better the next day. I mean, poor sleep increases your stress hormone, increases your hunger hormone ghrelin the next day. It increases insulin resistance, which makes it harder to actually tap into fat burning. Um, So there's a lot of negative things that happen when you sleep that make it so that you also can't recover. Because if you have a higher cortisol, higher stress level state, your body isn't in that rest and repair mode. It's in that fight or flight mode. So you're always going to be in that rest and repair, never in, or always in that fight or flight, never in that rest and repair to recover from the stressors of the day. Do we really have to stop the chill? I mean, the Netflix <laughs> and chill, like I feel like the chill probably has some really good hormonal benefits. 
Yeah. Yeah. The chill part, totally. Um, the negative is you're just looking at a light and it's totally destroying your melatonin production, which is our sleep hormone. And so you oh, get- wait, I thought that meant sex. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> yes. Chill part is great. <laughs> chill part. Great. Let's get rid of the Netflix part. Just jump to the chill part. And that's perfect. What are the benefits of the chill part? I mean, are there like, is there, what are the sexual, like with sex, what hormones are triggered and is it good to do it before you go to bed? I mean, does it help you sleep or what, what are no, the, honestly, what that is not my area of expertise. <laughs> um, if we, we can talk about food and hormones all day long. Uh, I think it depends on the individual and if it hypes them up before <laughs> or not, but you know, it, it seems like a great option. Chill, do it. <laughs> Just not too much Netflix. Got it. Okay. Not too much Netflix. Don't yeah. do that part. Have the chill yeah. part. <laughs> Um, well, one topic that I think I, you know, is, I feel like is so beneficial. And I was reminded recently going to New York and walking like 12 miles one day. And that's all I did that day. Like we just went there and we just walked around the park and went shopping. And it was just like the mother of all walking days. And I just forget how like good you feel. And it's one of those things that you can do and do and do. And the body tolerates it so well. And even from an experiential standpoint, when I wore the continued blood, blood, glucose, blood glucose monitor is that, um, when I'd start walking, my blood sugar would drop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it goes down to the couple factors. So obviously it's lower intensity. So you're not using the glucose as a fuel source. You're switching into using fat as fuel. So when your heart rate's lower, which it is when you're walking, you're using fat primarily. And that is such a sustainable energy source. We have so much fat to tap into. Even if you're extremely lean, even if you have 10% body fat or lower, you have so much fat that you can use versus two hours worth of carbohydrates that you can use that are stored in your body. So um, just by switching over to that, that's really great from that perspective, but also hormonally, I mean, you said you're walking around the park, you're walking outside and walking outside specifically, you know, exposes us to something called negative ions, which has been found to help decrease our serum cortisol levels, which are stress hormone. And remember cortisol raises blood glucose. So if we can decrease cortisol, we decrease stress, but we also decrease the blood glucose level as well. Wow. So what, I mean, explain more of the science of it, because like, if you're, you know, what does it do? What is it doing to you when you take a walk versus when you go into the gym and hit the weights? Well, first of all, when you take a walk, you can do it more frequently. Like you can get up. I have a Fitbit. I get up every hour when my Fitbit tells me I have not gotten 250 steps for that hour. And I walk around in place. Like <laughs> anyone who has a Fitbit definitely gets that annoying reminder, but it's so good because you can do it frequently. Whereas training, you can't, you can't like lift weights every hour. You can walk every hour and that breaks up sedentary moments throughout the day. Even if it's just for one minute that you're getting up and walking around, you're getting your muscles flexing. You're getting your muscles actually using energy, which makes the body more insulin sensitive and helps it more easily burn fat as fuel as a result too. So just from a purely practical perspective, like you mentioned, you could walk all day, or even if you don't have the opportunity to walk you know, 14 miles through the park on a beautiful New York day, anyone can get up from their desk and stand for one minute and walk around their office. It's just such a practical approach to keeping insulin sensitivity high and getting the body moving so that you're actually contracting your muscles um, and using fat as fuel in the process. If you were to put into words, your ideal day and your ideal week, like how would that look from your perspective? 
Uh, do you mean like just from exercise? Yeah. Like exercise, nutrition, fasting, you know, does, and, and then also do you, and then maybe, especially I'm just so curious from a female perspective because so many, so many, there's such a lack of studies done on women. Mm-hmm. Um, like, is there a certain time in the month where you would be more apt to do some more of one thing or less of another? Yeah. Um, well, just for a regular day, I mean, typically I wake up, the first thing I do is I go for a walk because that helps to get your body actually moving. Obviously you get your insulin sensitivity higher. Um, you get to use fat as fuel when your body is most primed to be using fat as fuel and personally just wakes me up right away. So do that completely fasted. Um, and then I always come back and do strength training workout right after that, still during the completely fasted state. Uh, to maximize on those growth hormone benefits. Um, and then I personally use keto coffee. I can't do black coffee. I love keto coffee. So I stick with that route and I transition into more of a fasting mimicking state around like eight or 9am and then totally break my fast anywhere between 10am to noon really depends on if I have clients that day or if I'm just filming. Um, I always break my fast with protein, fat, and fiber. So it's usually going to be a smoothie that has Greek yogurt, protein powder, chia seeds, um, peanut butter, using coconut milk, um, a low sugar fruit, like a small amount of berries, um, strawberries, raspberries. And then all I typically personally use a three meal structure. I just found like, if I do two meals, I'm way too hungry. Like I I just can't do it. So I have a three meal structure, not snacking between just having water, um, having sea salt. Uh, I also use apple cider vinegar before I break my fast, um, to help stabilize blood glucose levels before the first meal. Mm. Um, and then my second meal, usually like scrambled eggs, eggs are one of the best protein sources. It's so bioavailable. It's the most bioavailable protein, um, and also rich in fat. So it's like an easy one where you don't have to overcomplicate adding in all these ingredients. Uh, and then personally for myself for dinner, usually it's around 6 PM and, um, I'm going to be, I mean, I have, I like to make recipes. I, I love to cook. Yes. So it's all across the board, like beef stew, burgers, something along those lines. Um, and take my magnesium, go to bed and repeat it the next day. <laughs> mm, and then that's, there's no, is there any kind of cycling or any, any difference between? No, I've not found the cycling to be sustainable. First of all, because again, it goes back to that itch, issue. Same thing as ADF it gets or alternate day fasting gets so confusing for so many people. And I've not found it actually to be beneficial, um, at all for all the effort that it takes in your brain space, where we all have so much to think about anyway, like to try and overcomplicate how we eat and when we eat. And if we can just keep it consistent and get enough, the right types of foods, you can solve 99% of your problems with that alone. And just most people aren't even doing that, but overcomplicating if that 1% tweak. Hmm. What about hacks? Like, do you any, are there any kind of just, you know, I, I feel like it's such an overused word, but are there any things that you do that like, I'm just as an example, like, like things that I do, like cold shower or, um, you know, red light or, uh, amethyst biomat or, you know, whatever it may be. Are there any things that you have in your regular routine that, um, are cool and fun that you're testing out and you feel like you like, um, I'm not much of like in the biohacking area. Again, I like to keep it simple and realistic. And so much of what our body needs comes from the simple and realistic things we're going to be doing every day. Um, With red light, I'd rather go outside and just get all of the light from all of the spectrums that I need. And I have the privilege of working from home where I can go on walks. And um, when it's not freezing out like it is right now, wear a shirt that allows me to show my arms and get full exposure and also get vitamin D. So I think that like the, the 
I am interested in hearing all of the biohacking information. I think it's an interesting world, but I also think that it's kind of overlooking the point of the fact that kind of like supplements, like we're trying to tweak all these little things, but we don't actually know how it's going to affect the big picture where you can get the same things from the whole source just by going outside or, you know, cold shower is cool. I actually do like that. I think that's a great option. It does help to um, convert the uh, white fat into brown fat. That's more metabolically active. I'm a wuss. I don't do that. I should, but I can't. Um, but yeah, I, try- I hate the cold so much. I hate the cold Hard. so much, which yeah. makes me feel like I'm supposed to do it. That yeah. and I have to do sauna because, like, with a detoxing heavy metals, yeah. like sweating is such a such a way to do it. Um, yeah. I mean, sauna is not as hard, but I, I, I get knocked out. Like saunas make me feel pretty exhausted actually. Yeah. I mean, probably cause you're releasing so much. So right. that would make sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean the, the only like hacks I might use is like using magnesium to help improve my melatonin. Um, or if I'm experiencing higher than usual amounts of anxiety, then I'll use L-theanine, which is a really great amino acid. Uh, that's taken from green tea to help with naturally reducing stress levels. So that is like a little bit of a hack, I guess. Um, but in terms of intermittent fasting hack, my biggest one is keto coffee. Like, honestly, it's so great to help the gut healing aspect and reducing hunger while still getting the low insulin levels. So it's just, I mean, butter, coconut oil and coffee. It's awesome. What about, could I, cause I'm like, I'm, I don't know, maybe you're similar. I, I don't, I get hungry in the morning, like in the earlier part of the day, like I feel hungry. And then as the day goes on, like take, for example, the day that I was supposed to eat whatever I wanted all day, which I, all I did was eat the healthy stuff, but I just broke out of the mold of like the three things I could eat. And so, um, but it got to dinner time, And I remember I was like eating normal, but I was eating like, uh, just stuff. I wasn't been, wasn't able to eat, um, like outside of the beans and greens and stuff. And I thought I'm still kind of hungry, but I'm, I'm not trying to kill it. I don't need to like be stupid. And then nighttime came and I was like having some rice and some greens and some broccolini and chicken. And, and I was eating, I just, I just felt stuffed. I like felt, I get so full. So can I like keto coffee is always something that you think about for the morning, right? You always think about it for the morning, but can you, can you, can you consider it the start of your fast if you did a keto coffee, like a decaf keto coffee at night? Um, it, well, it just depends on the type of fasting you're using. So if you wanted a, a true fast, um, then it technically breaks a fast. If you're looking at fasting mimicking, like what I was referring to, um, then yeah, it's it would be counted as part of your fast. You could do that, but you said you get hungry in the morning, right? More in the morning, less at night, yeah. <laughs> like you would want to do it in the morning then when you're actually hungry. Um, so you get the fat to actually signal the, the, um, closest to kinine to make sure it shuts off your hunger hormones. Oh, so if you're trying to, so true fasting is not having any calories. It's nothing. I mean, it's even like stevia can spike Like there's, it's very sensitive, even coffee can. Right. And so yeah. you want to be careful, like when you're actually in your fasting window to truly give your stomach a break. So when you say fasting, fasting, mimicking, what are you trying to accomplish by the mimicking? So it's still lower insulin. And that's one of the main hormones that we're stimulating all day long. That's our anabolic hormone. It's our storing hormone. So if we're looking at just trying to give our body a break in terms of being in a catabolic versus an anabolic state, just by not raising insulin, you're not you know, in that, um, storing mode. So especially from a weight loss perspective, or if you're just new to intermittent fasting, or if you're hungry during the fast, 
there's no reason why you should have to push yourself all the way to that point um, of having a true fast when you could have a true fast for, let's say 12 hours or 14 hours. And then that last two hours, you have your keto coffee, then you're just two hours of a fasting mimicking. You still get most of the benefits anyway, but you're not hungry. Cause you just need to get to that sort of 12, 14 mark. And then right. you get most of the benefits of the fasting, which is kind of, it sounds like if you have dinner at six and you have your coffee by like eight, you're kind of yeah. hitting that 12 to 14, yeah, 14, 14 yeah. hour mark. And then a couple hours later, you finally eat, whether it's 10 or 12, you're 14, 16 or right. 18, depending on what you're doing. So right. the fasting mimicking is really just to kind of tie it's, it's, it's just allowing you to, it does not spiking your insulin because it's just fat. Cause fat right. does nothing to insulin. Yeah, fat does not spike insulin on its own. So you're kind of staying in that state, but you're, but you're not actually fasting from like an autophagy standpoint, from a cellular standpoint, because you do get. Yeah. Right. So you don't get the biggest one that you don't get is migrating motor complex. Cause right when you do consume anything, that's when that turns off. So, um, that's why I like to have definitely a true fast, um, buffered from the evening and in the morning. So I get the migrating motor complex stimulated and why I like to have zero snacks in between my meals to get that stimulated as well. Um, but you still get the energy levels, which is what a lot of people love with fasting. You still get the brain, the mental clarity or the energy boost, and you're not hungry. Um, so from those perspectives, you get all those other benefits, but you just, and the fat burning state, of course, which is one that a lot of people are interested in. You just aren't getting some of the other benefits, or at least not during that last two hours, which at that point, we're just, we're just nitpicking, you know, you're, we're still getting 14 hours of the fast. And if you can double down and not have um, snacks between meals, you're also getting that period of rest as well. In between, because you always recommend there to be like four hours essentially between meals. Uh, yeah, um, definitely. If you're looking to maximize gut health, but the, you know, I don't want people to think that if they're having like an eight hour eating window that they have like two minutes to eat four <laughs> meals in between each one, just not even having snacks. Like that's the goal. Cause then you still get some amount of stimulation between meals. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, gone are the days where, I mean, I used to wake up in the morning, no matter what time it was, I would eat even if I wasn't hungry in the morning, I would yeah. always eat first thing in the morning. And I would ever, and the only thing I would say is I did eat every sort of three or four hours. I would try and use that as a guide because I just, I was felt like I was hungry more than that, but I was like, gosh, this only it's only been two hours. I really yeah. gotta hang on here. But I would eat like sit five or five times a day, you know. So and what I, is it? It's out of curiosity because you said you it's like intermittent fasting is difficult um, for you. What is it that you're eating during your eating window? Minus this time right now where I'm eating really like simple, which was like I had two eggs, a couple pieces of bacon. Um and I bet, and I'm always buying like whole 30 approved kind of level. So there's no sugar in the bacon. Like, I mean, I don't eat bacon that often. I haven't eaten bacon for a while and it was delicious. Right. <laughs> I had a couple of eggs. I had some sauteed spinach, um, lentils, uh, avocado, a quarter avocado. That was my breakfast this like morning. Breakfast. Okay. Yeah. And then, um, something normal for lunch right now would be like arugula with olive oil, a little balsamic, um, chicken, um, and maybe some black beans or refried beans. Mm-hmm. Um, another, another meal that would be, um, sort of on the sweet spectrum, but is such a healthy version. Like I'd mash up half of an, half of a banana with, uh, like protein. Uh, I use the, I like Epic protein. It's a good one. It's like a Sacha inchy protein and, or I use a pea protein. So a plant-based one and I'll put probably, you know, somewhere between 20, around 25 grams worth of that protein in it. And, um, then I just thin it out with enough like 
almond milk or whatever milk I have, like plant-based milk to thin it out. And then I top it with like coconut mana. Have you ever had coconut mana? Of course. It's in so many of my smoothies. <laughs> Nature's frosting. If anyone it's doesn't so know good. what coconut mana is, you're missing out and you're Add it to a smoothie and it makes it so creamy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then maybe a little bit of something like a cashew butter or something like that. And I don't really add too much fruit to that. I don't really add fruit, just like the half a banana and there is enough. And um, what is cool is having the, the, the monitor to check my um, blood glucose spike. It didn't do anything. So I know that it's not something that spikes it. Um, and dinner like steak or, um, uh, gr- vegetables. Um, I know sweet potatoes spike my, spike my blood sugar. So I don't have sweet potatoes. So rice didn't do anything. So I can have that or like a taco night with a corn tortilla chips, like corn tortilla stuff doesn't spike it either. So I know that doesn't, um, but vegetables and avocado and, um, maybe every now and again, a smoothie, which I super low on fruit, putting it in my smoothie yeah. it's easy to get a lot of calories in a smoothie. Um, yeah. and I love chia pudding. Like I make oh my gosh, yeah. a lot of times, like a breakfast instead of oatmeal I'll have, cause oats were like through yeah. the roof yeah. for a blood that. sugar. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah. And I would do chia seeds with hot water and then put some plant protein in it. And I top it again with like a little, little coconut yeah. mon or something to melt on it. And mm-hmm. it's a really like very low sugar kind of meal. Um, and so that'd be another common meal. So I, I feel like I eat pretty. You eat. Yeah. You have a lot of great ingredients in there. Yeah. Um, so Any recommendations. I, I was just trying to mentally calculate everything. So um, how many ounces of like steak or chicken would you say you generally have? I mean, I would say that because I don't count uh, now, but I have counted before just to see. And it does take a bit of effort to get to 100 grams. I, I mean, I kind of use the guideline and I don't weigh 100 pounds, but I kind of use the guideline of trying to get to 100 grams or like I've heard a, a gram per per pound of body weight. Um, and so, I mean, it, I, I'd say that's probably about what I get. I eat more protein than I used to. Um, so, uh, cause that was, I was kind of counting more in that time where I was trying to be a little bit more kind to the animals. Right. Um, but well, I'd, say, I'd say I'd probably get somewhere around 80 to a hundred every day from all from complete or including incomplete. Um, mostly complete. Okay. Yeah. Incomplete would be like, you're saying, like if you, like, let's say if you track the whole day and yeah, if there were beans or peanut butter or something that contributed. Yeah, not really. I'd say a solid 80 to 90 of complete protein. Okay, great. So then you're probably getting mental math, um, like five ounces of chicken. Or yeah, 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 yeah. I'd say I'm, I'm a little bit more generous with my protein sources right now because I'm eating more yeah. like that's my, my main satiation along with the fat is like, yeah, greens don't go real far. Right. Do you usually start off with some type of starch in the morning, like lentils? No, No. I mean, I do put it in my, I I do right now, but a lot of times a very common breakfast that I would have before I was trying this bean situation Uh was I'd have, um, ground bison. I'd throw spinach in there and saute it up. So it's just ground bison spinach. And then I'd have a piece of like vegan gluten-free bread and I'd put, um, uh, avocado on it and turmeric and salt yeah. and pepper and broccoli sprouts. And yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, you always have some type of starch then. Cause like with the, yeah, bread. I guess there would be, that'd be true. Yeah. That would be true. Yeah. I found that tends to spike hunger throughout the day. And really? Make, yeah. I would experiment, just take out the starch and yeah. experiment with re- replacing that with another fat. 
so that you can just add in a satiety factor and just keep a starch in the evening. So you get the perks of, um, getting higher quality sleep. See if that helps. If you're getting hundred grams of protein, then you're probably fine there, but see if adding in the fat, removing the starch from the morning, um, helps to make it so you're not as hungry throughout the day. I love that. That's a great suggestion. Cause you're right. Somehow in my mind, I think I should have a little bit of everything. Yeah. Yeah. And we usually don't eat as much of the fat as we think we are. So <laughs> the fat component, especially if you consider you're removing that other energy source, which is the carbohydrate, you need another energy source to come back in. So just make sure you're actually replacing it the whole source. Like instead of that slice, have a extra half an avocado. Yeah. Yeah. Cause again, like we learned, your sources of energy come from fat or carbohydrate. You're either exactly. a fat burner or a sugar burner. Exactly. Protein. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's so funny. I never, I mean, all the, all the nutritional information I've consumed, I didn't even think about the fact that like, I didn't, I guess I didn't even know that. Yeah. It's going back to what I was saying. It's because so many people with intermittent fasting are focused on the fast, not the eating window. And so they completely forget to really an analyze that area, which is what my whole YouTube channel is based off of, because that's what I did wrong was not looking at the eating window. Wow. Well, thank you. You've been a total wealth of knowledge. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure I'll just keep watching your videos and then I'll just keep having more questions. So, um, but, uh, I'll let you know what they are along the way. <laughs> oh yeah. Anytime. I always love talking about nutrition. Obviously it's all I think about or talk about. So I'm always here. <laughs> thank you, Autumn. Thanks everybody for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.